with everybody's experience with the franchise. I seen them all. Truly, am not sure if I had seen this movie all the way through, start to finish before. Oh yeah, because of cultural osmosis. Oh right, yeah. On, yeah. I've, yeah. I've seen scenes of this movie yep. so many times. I've watched Never Sleep Again, the documentary. So I feel like really well acquainted with this film. But I, the whole time watching it, I was like, have I seen this start yeah. to finish? Um, had I you? Know, was there I, a beat that surprised I, you? You still don't know. I've gone with. I no. If I can't remember for sure, I've I've gone with no. Um, I mean, and even though I mean, he, no, he no didn't seen all the kills. No, none in other of the pop culture stuff. Yeah, none of the beats surprised me because I, I was familiar with all three of the major. There's only three kills in this movie. They're all mm-hmm. great, uh, but I, I remembered and had kind of some. Well, maybe the Rod one I was less familiar with in the jail. Yeah, so that that was it was sort of that sequence, sort of the middle sequence. What about of the, movie. the end? The end uh, is part of what made me be like, maybe I don't remember this. I never did see this movie all the okay. way through because the ending I had totally forgotten about yeah. and was frankly unimpressed with. And yeah. I know Cra- it wasn't Craven's first choice. Yeah. Um, so we'll talk about that in a little bit, I'm sure. But yeah, I, I'm still not sure. Now, I've seen uh, Freddy 2, uh, mm-hmm. Freddy's Revenge, Nightmare 2, Freddy's Revenge. I've seen New Nightmare. Uh, I saw a new night. New Nightmare was the first Nightmare movie I ever saw. I saw that. As okay, a kid. I saw that as a kid. Strong start. I agree. I think that movie kicks ass. Um, it does. I've seen Freddy vs. Jason, mm-hmm. of course, um, and I've not seen the remake with. Uh, I almost called him Haley Joel Osment, Jackie Earl Haley. <laughs> that is Rudy so Mara. much better. I need it. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, that's so now, funny. You've seen all of them, of course, yeah. Dustin. Arthur had you. Yeah, you seen all of them. I've seen all of them and some of them a couple of times. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Yeah. So pretty, pretty long history, or is that like a recent catch up? No, yeah, I mean recent. Gotcha. Ten years. Uh, okay. <laughs> ago now. Um, I, I, I had the box set of the original uh, New Line Run, and. Uh, which is really cool because the box set, each case, it kind of made up a uh, the back profile of Freddy. Oh, that's cool. Which was kind of a fun little design thing. But uh, I remember I had a period where I wasn't feeling well, sinus stuff. And I woke up pretty early, like every morning, like three or four in the morning. I think I watched most of the franchises in that week. That's a great time to watch these movies. Yeah. Ooh, three or four in the morning after yeah. waking up. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Now so we're talking. that was kind of my first, I think, experience with this franchise. Obviously, kind of like you, Cultural Osmosis, I knew Freddy. Uh, there's a pretty famous Simpsons Treehouse of Horror sketch where uh, Groundskeeper Willie is Freddy, mm-hmm. uh, which is a lot of fun. So a lot of that stuff kind of... Uh, this, the cultural osmosis thing you mentioned uh, for me. Uh, so I caught it there. I think I may have seen Freddy versus Jason prior to that. I might have seen that in high school. I saw that when he came Right out. after high school. Because when was that, 04? I five? think so. Yeah, I, I was think in I saw school. that. I was then, in middle school when I saw yeah. it. I think I might have been in kindergarten years of age when this movie first entered into my psyche. Periphery. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I think my dad may have been watching. I don't know if I sat through the whole thing or not, but... You can recollect. I can... I, I, yeah. I Well, uh, Nancy in the bathtub specifically i mean and that's one that i'm like have i seen this movie before because i've seen the bathtub scene so So many times yeah yeah but uh yeah i didn't remember nancy's mom being an alcoholic so again another point in the have i seen this movie column well i've seen it i don't think i remember that an interesting like through line too, Mm -hmm. like a a real like actual narrative hook for this movie to hang its hat on as far as like their relationship goes yeah um a lot of interesting stuff going on in this movie honestly like way more than I was prepared for. Yeah, uh, I think it's. I don't know. I I can't reasonably say this not having seen Friday Part One, 
but like i don't know this this has got to be one of the stronger slashers there is right like i, I come on mm-hmm. right i think so i i think so yeah i mean i not not thinking about like it's it's larger extended ephemera not yeah. thinking no. about the time he he rapped as <laughs> not a, thinking as about a the debut yeah. yeah right i mean i i prefer i know halloween gets big coming out party. gets all the uh the flowers for being sort of the first American Early, yeah. slasher movie. But well, it, it sort of it creates the formula. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, Friday 13th is clearly just part of the formula. Just you know, here's our It just managed yeah. to break yeah. through, uh, uh, unlike some of the other copycats. Right. Yeah. And so th- this movie does feel like it is another thing. It feels like a third film in a horror director's career, mm-hmm. right? I, yeah. I, did he do any movies between The Hills Have Eyes and this? Not that I'm aware of. I don't. I think this is his third effort. I'd have to look at Craven's. Yeah. We'll, um, we'll pull up his filmography at some point, but yeah, I, that's what it feels like. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel like a cash in on a slasher trend. It, it feels like a. a I've a got an idea. Of, I've got a. I've got a good horror movie idea. Yeah, because yeah. it's not about you know butchering teenagers by the dozens it's, no. it's about four kids and their adventure mm-hmm. their scary adventure uh, yes dustin introduce the show hey hey i'm dustin um uh we're doing a show my name <laughs> welcome again to the good trash honor cast we gather around table we discuss films you'll never discuss in a film says course i am still dustin i am still arthur i am still dalton and we are going to talk about nightmare on elm street for shocktober number 11 we're very excited we've been having all this fun conversation shocks up. from the book of shocks <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when you've been doing it this long, you got to get a little unconventional with the uh, the sequel titles. Yes. Taking... Turn in next week when I'm replaced by Chris Rock. <laughs> I promise not to assault my new co-host. He's been I through enough. Make no promises. Don't be nice to our new co-host. Um, I will be nice to our dear listener by warning them about spoilers. What's, uh, what are you going to warn them about? Well, this is an analysis show, not a review show. So if you have not seen Night Around Elm Street and don't know how it ends, we are going to spoil it, but we're going to save it for the end. Because we're very nice. We're sweet boys. And so what we'll do to do that for you, dear listeners, we'll have a synopsis, which will be spoiler-free. Then we'll go into quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews, which will be, again, just like a review. It'll be very, very uh, easy on the spoiler areas. And then we'll move into a little game called Expanding the Syllabus, which might involve the gentlest of spoilers of this film or other films of its ilk. And then finally we'll get down to business, that business being analysis, and that's when all spoiler bets are off. You've been warned. Fair enough. Thank you for introducing the show, Dustin. Arthur, uh, could you please delight us with the synopsis, please? Uh, Editor's note. Uh, This is actually his fifth movie, uh, Craven. Oh. Uh, He did uh, the one called Deadly Blessing after uh, Hills Have Eyes. I've heard of Deadly uh, Blessing. Which I need to see because the film tells the story of a strange figure committing murder in a contemporary community that is not far from another community that believes in ancient evil and curse. Here's the hook. It stars Ernest Borgnine. Whoa! That's enough to give me. And Sharon Stone in an early role. Um, and then he did Swamp Thing. And then he did. Oh, I forgot oh, about Swamp Thing. I've seen Swamp right. Thing. I have to. Uh, what am I doing? Synopsis? Let me yeah, find. you're doing a synopsis. When the students on Elm Street begin to have shared nightmares, they grow concerned. And when they start dying, they have to find a way to stay awake and solve the mystery of the gloved monster, Freddy Krueger. That is the movie. Thanks. If you go to sleep, he'll kill you. Don't go to sleep. Never sleep again. Never, ever sleep again. Um, mm. Creepiest little jingle song 
ever. Mm. The, that, uh, that whole trope of kids and scary. It's good. It works. It's, uh, one, two, Freddy's Coming for You is a good, is a, is good, is yep. good movie. It, it, I learned in rewatching a little bit of Never Sleep Again that uh, Heather Langenkamp's boyfriend came up with the... Uh, the sort the of rhyme. The, the rhyme, the tune for the rhyme, and then the composer like worked it into his like larger themes. Mm. That's cool. Yeah. Oh, that was really interesting. Interesting. Well, I think you are the um perhaps newest viewer. Yeah. Dalton, uh, so question we're gonna, mark? I'm question. definitely the newest viewer. I just it's unclear how new of a viewer I am. So right? we'll start with you. Yeah. I was kind of having a hard time with this movie. I ended up watching it in two parts. I, I did bounce off of it a little bit at first, and I, I struggled to figure out why. And the more I thought about it, the more I kept coming back to, I really think the memification of Fred Krueger hurts this movie. The the turn from Fred Krueger to Freddy Krueger that takes place between one and two does a lot, which isn't to say two's not successful. I mean, I think two's really interesting. It's got the whole like really kind of fun queer reading uh, component. Mm-hmm. Really interesting movie that I, I, I would like to rewatch again at some point. But uh, for whatever reason, I, Robert England's performance like still does manage to shine through. But it's mm-hmm. it's hard to be afraid of afraid of Fred Krueger sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. this film is smart and how little it shows him, how little it uses him. You know, he's got very little screen time. Um, but I, I do think that like my, my overt familiarity with this franchise and with like Fred Krueger as an idea kind of made it hard for me to get into this movie. Uh, now after watching, taking a break for a day, jumping back in, in the second act, I, I found myself falling right in, uh, falling in love with sort of its ethereal rhythms uh, and that might have been what was kind of giving me some uh, some trouble at first is this movie does kind of have a, a really sort of surreal way of unfolding. And I think it's one of its biggest strengths, mm-hmm. uh, as much as it might have been what caused me to bounce off of it a little bit. I, I do think it's a big strength of the film is you are never quite sure at what point a dream scene has become a dream scene. And I think that's such a so effective. Uh, just the ways in which, you know, you can use editing to be your best special effect as far as unsettling the audience and kind of confusing them. I, again, I'm just really blown away with the, the kind of the cleverness and inventiveness of this film. And, you know, uh, just the, the staggering effort of making a 90-minute movie with 80 effects shots in 26 days. That's nuts. And almost all of those effects are done in camera um and one to two takes that's just like a herculean effort uh and and really like speaks to the bona fides of this movie like there's a reason it became a cultural touchstone like everything worked it's one of those lightning in a bottle movies it really is uh but again all that said like it it is less scary than it should be uh by just by virtue of you know fred krueger becoming the mummy becoming the creature from the black lagoon as, as the Mount Rushmore of 80 slashers villains have become Michael, Jason, Fred and Leatherface are the Wolfman, the black creature from the black lagoon, the invisible man. Like they're not really scary anymore. They're just sort of kind of fun cultural artifacts. And that, I think that hurts all of these movies at some Mm -hmm. level that said, boy is the idea of getting murdered in your dream and never waking up effective. Is this is the taking the nightmare the the one of the truest and most foundational aspects of being a human being, taking that inner fear that lives within all of us? Our brain makes all of us be horror food movie fans. <laughs> Even those of us who don't like horror movies are subjected to horror movies when we go to sleep sometimes, and I think that that is like a, a pure 
cinematic uh, thrill to tap into, especially when you think about, uh, hey, it's Fableman's uh, trailer release week uh, as we're recording this. Uh, when you consider that all movies are dreams that you never forget, uh, mm-hmm. it really does sort of add a second layer to to this movie. Um, yeah, good job, Wes Craven. You, it, it's It's a picture. Uh, and I like it a lot, despite having some quibbles with it, despite wishing it worked a little bit better than it did. And I really do hate the ending. I I want to like it. I, there's things I do like about it. It just kind of falls flat on well, its Well, that's one of those though. producer note things, too. I, oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm aware. It, but it, it just doesn't work. Yeah. I, I do like Robert England's interpretation uh, a little bit. Uh, his interpretation is that the whole movie is a prophetic dream. And that the end of the movie is the beginning of the movie. Mm. That's that's sort of Robert England's take on it. And I think that's that's the only take that kind of comes close to saving the end of this movie. But it does lose some big points for that that producer influenced ending. Uh, although that producer is also the same producer who gave us the running up the stairs gag, mm-hmm. and that works. Rules. That rules. That's one of the coolest images in the movie. Mm-hmm. So you know what are you going to do? Sometimes the producers have good ideas. Sometimes they have bad ideas. But uh, you know. That's that's making a movie. It's it's a collaborative effort, as as we so often try to highlight on this show. It is it's not just about our tour theory. It really is about people coming together and making something work. And I think watching uh, or revisiting, I should say, uh, a little bit of Never Sleep Again, the documentary on the the Nightmare franchise, um, it, it really does highlight like how how many cooks were in the kitchen in a good way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, as far as bringing this to the screen, uh, Arthur. What about you? How, how, where are you at? I know you kind of had some similar issues as far as not really being afraid of Freddy anymore, right? Yeah, I, I, I think for me, the film's kind of a mixed bag. I, uh, I think maybe part of it is that cartooniness of Fred Krueger. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even here in this movie, I think for me, the sinister knife sharpening, brooding, stalking Fred Krueger, hand out of the water in the tub, Fred Krueger is much more interesting than the welcome to extending arm. Well, even the extending arms oh, and okay. phone gag, like mm. there's a little too much cartooniness here. Even I think the first one for, for, for what for, and, and obviously that's what they double down on. And I think that's what the audiences respond to. There's something, you know, fun about, and he, he really does become the cool of, of all these, you know, this trio, Mike Myers and him and, and uh, Jason, he does really have, I think the cool appeal. He's got the most personality. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of that's Robert England uh, and just owning this role, you know, uh, so well. Um, And and then when they really start laying into that, I think it goes interesting places. But here, it doesn't always work for me. I I think kind of like uh, Smoking the Bandit, it starts real high in a way, and then it never has a way to ramp up from where it starts high. And so I, I, I think maybe if it started smaller, kind of with uh, the, 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 the boyfriend, you know, that's a very low key type of uh, Fred kill. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it starts pretty brazen. Yeah. Without getting into spoilers, uh, that first kill is hard to yeah. top. And, yes. and I mean, and it does. I think depths is cool. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah. think some of the stuff that takes place later, great imagery. You know, you, you mentioned the stairs thing. And I think that. The costuming, the special effects stuff, rotating the room, like mm-hmm. that kind of stuff is real cool. Oh yeah, and and those things work for me. Um, but by and large, I just don't land with this one uh, for some reason, and, and I don't know what it is. And I, I think the idea is 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 money. Mm-hmm. This the dream killer. I mm-hmm. think that's so cool. It's great. 
But again, I, I think there's just a tonal dissonance to me that doesn't quite work. And I think there's a level wherein the state, the stakes don't raise. It feels like, you know, the action has risen to the top and then we're just strapped in until the end uh, in a way that doesn't quite work. Uh, I like cast mostly. Um, I think for the most, and mostly the adults, I think more than the kids. I, I like some of the support here, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, Lynn Shea obviously showing up is big. Um, but her mom, I think, is solid. The, her dad, the sheriff, is John, John Saxon, Saxon, baby. Yeah, it was good. Uh, and, and so those things I do appreciate about it. But by and large, I just, just don't think I'm a Nightmare fan is where I kind of come, come down on it. Yeah. Well, fair enough, fair enough. Um, I, I tend to be kind of a Nightmare guy. I, I, I like Nightmare a lot. Again, it was sort of my initial introduction. Although, um, I did, as far as my catching up with the movies, I did watch the Fridays before I've watched the Nightmares. Um, but as far as incompletion of the, of the first cycle, I should say. Uh, but that being said, uh, Nightmare, this movie does feel very much, as you watch it now, uh, feels very much like they don't know what they have yet. Mm-hmm. And they are figuring out what it is that they have. And, I mean, you can sort of see some of this in the second film in which uh, they really didn't know quite to what extent Freddy is the anchor of the franchise, and uh, which is kind of fascinating. Um, that late in the creation of, again, sort of franchise serial horror, um, strange to me. But that being said, uh, it, it does work uh, for, for the most part. I love that first uh, opening sequence um, of just uh, Freddy assembling that glove. You know who that is? Is actually the prop master. Oh, is it? He's the only one who knew how to build the glove. Ah, yeah. yeah. So he just, and this is sort of him actually doing it yeah. then. That's interesting. As, as you know, that could be apocryphal, but that was what mm-hmm. I read. Yeah, I love it though. I hope it's true. Um, but yeah, that, that sort of, again, just sort of really does strap me in uh, for the rest of the film. Um, and again, the use of really really disturbing sort of dream sequence stuff uh, the you know tina in the body bag mm-hmm. um just having a sheep walk by yeah. it's the cheapest special effect you can get renting a sheep yeah. but it just immediately puts you in dreamland yeah and, and so uh there's a moment in uh the first hellraiser film where uh there's a dream and there's these chicken feathers and a baby crying and it doesn't make any sense and it's probably the most unnerving sequence of the film and there's a number of those uh in this one uh but to arthur's point yes the phone licking Nancy, Nancy, I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. And, you know, I mean, there is some of this real kind of silliness uh, that is at work there. But there, I, I like the way that Freddie delights in being so bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like the way the, the, his, um, his joyfulness in uh, doing murder is uh, compelling. And, uh, well, and I think in this film, there is menace. Mm-hmm. Right, it's not just jokes. Right, it, it isn't welcome to prime time yet. It's this is your god, mm-hmm. and that's scary. Him holding up that glove, saying this is your god, that rules. Yeah, what a what a moment. Yeah, but I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, and it, but he delights in scaring them. He yes. is he's absolutely very very intentionally like I am I I'm not just I could just kill you. Yeah, but I will take my time to terrify you because that is. 
that's what he enjoys. Yeah. And it's not uh, about the stabby stabby like it is for Michael. Right. Right. Yeah. Or even Jason who just wants to get the job done, you know, and we'll use the, the posing of the body seems to be an alarm system that he develops there. It actually is just the, uh, the, the frightening itself is what Freddie seems to feed on, which the movie never says, but it makes sense that a nightmare would feed on fear. Well, and that's, you know, I think that based on, you know, interviews with Craven and, and England and, and others, like that is sort of everybody's take on it, mm-hmm. on the character, is that like, he, that is what he's really after is, is the scare. Though it's not explicitly stated anywhere, you yeah. know, I mean, the, the explicitly stated motive is revenge, mm-hmm. right? And that, that seems to have less to do with it, mm-hmm. uh, the way it's, it, it's acted out. And so, and then just the iconic, uh, um, the iconic nature of it, that green and red sweater, that fedora hat. Yeah. Um, Man, the burn pizza face. He looks cool. It works. You know, it absolutely works. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, for what it is, it is good. Of it is is as good an example of what it is as you'll find. And, That's a very good way to put it. And uh, therefore, I like it quite a bit. So there you go, dear listener. Our uh, readings of Nightmare are generally pro, with some caveats. Uh, we're going to move on to the next part of our show, which we like to call "Expanding the Syllabus." And this time, Arthur's going to tell us what that's all about. Expanding the Syllabus is a thought experiment wherein we, the hosts, assemble an academic course or module within a course uh, based around the assigned viewing for the week and adjacent texts from books and articles to tangentially related films and stories. There you go. Um, Arthur, are you prepared with the syllabus today? Yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, I think I would talk about horror and pop culture. I, I think the fan aspect of that is really fun. And so maybe focusing on cons, you know, Texas horror con, things like that, um, wherein, you know, uh, it's it's this weird Venn diagram of you know, comic book fans and and horror fans and conventions and like how that all operates. You know the fandom behind. I mean, diehard horror fans are diehard in a way, kind of I think uncommon in other fandoms other than maybe comic books and sci fi. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's something really interesting, and, and, and the people who become stars within horror become mega stars in those communities and robert england i think is the er example of that it's like him and bruce campbell yeah and right. maybe jamie lee curtis right yeah and, and, and but i think i think campbell and he are the better examples because they haven't had sort of the same mainstream success that jamie uh had um and i think especially england really does and, and i only say this because i got to see him at a con and see him talk um, but he does seem to kind of, I think, milk that in, in a way that maybe others might not. Um, and so I, I think we talk about that. So I think we'd start with Best Worst Movie, the nice. documentary, which kind of chronicles the cult life of Troll 2, which we would also talk about and watch, um, to look at how this can give new life to movies that are often disregarded uh, and also can create characters that are larger than life in a way and, and also memeable. And I think that's kind of a part of this and the way it kind of bleeds over into pop culture. We'd probably also talk about Texas Chainsaw. Um, and I can't think of, I meant to look it up, who plays Leatherface? Oh, God. Um, uh, Gunner Hansen. Gunner Hansen. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Gunner Hansen, I think, you know, is, obviously was, was big on the convention circuit as well mm-hmm. uh, and then from there we'd also talk about Kane Hodder we'd also look at Friday the 13th part 7 uh, the new blood which is where he first takes on uh, the role of Freddy and and really you know it's funny uh, Jason yeah Jason and it's funny that at entry 7 is when the Jason mannerisms motifs style is really cemented by Kane Hodder so the definitive mm-hmm. Jason comes yeah. along way, way late in yeah. the series. and there's yeah. something really interesting in looking at that I think uh, so we talk about that we talk about con uh, culture and how that all comes together uh, I think we'd also probably look a little more at Freddy 
uh, not just here, but also just that memeability of him, the way he was, I mean, he was present in everything in the late eighties and early nineties, mm-hmm. talk shows, commercials, you know, tie-ins, bad boys, music videos. Yeah. I, I mean, he was, I mean, he is arguably the most iconic horror monster this side of the 1930s. I think you're right. Uh, and, and I think there's something fascinating about that and, and the way audiences and probably a postmodern audience caught on to him because of his kind of meta narrative that, that really existed after part one, uh, which <laughs> probably look at a little bit of Rick and Morty as well, which has a character that is heavily influenced. Gary Terry, yeah, Gary Terry, which is based on, you know, Freddy Krueger. Uh, but that's probably what we talk about. Just, just, horror in pop culture maybe specifically talk about nightmare in pop culture as well that sounds like a lot of fun um dalton do you have a class prepared i sure do uh the more i think about this the more i think it's actually a uh, philosophy and film class more than it's a film class Mm. Uh, i think it is probably going to be more on the philosophical side of things uh but it'd be a class on movies about dreams uh but i think we would start with uh the story, uh, Zhuangzi's dream of being a butterfly from, uh, the Zhuangzi, the, uh, the Taoist text. I'm probably mm. whiffing my pronunciation on that, but yeah, uh, probably. Yeah. But if, if you know from Taoism, you probably have heard of this, uh, this text and you've probably heard of the dream of being a butterfly. The long and the short of it, of course, being, uh, uh Zhuangzi dreamed of being a butterfly or was he a butterfly dreaming of being a man? And that's sort of the fun jumping off point. Mm-hmm. For, but it's 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 kind of a foundational, like, what what's a dream anyway uh, story from, you know, several hundred years uh, before the common era. But, of course, we'd have to look at things like Inception. Uh, we'd look at Richard Linklater's Waking Life, uh, the rotoscoped uh, sort of waking dream film. Uh, we'd look at the anime film Paprika. Uh, we'd look at uh, Tarsum's The Cell. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is not explicitly about dreams, but is about dream realms. I mean, subconscious worlds, yeah. Yeah, subconscious yeah. realms, exactly. Uh, we would look at The Wizard of Oz and The Matrix uh, as far as dreamland films. Of course, we would look at A Nightmare on Elm Street, but I think we'd also have to look at A New Nightmare, uh, which sort of gets even further into the sort of... It gets Jungian with it, yeah. Yeah, hell yeah. It gets kind of really taps into this idea of like dreams as a uh, shared subconsciousness uh, and... and just teases out the ideas of new night or of a nightmare on Elm street in a really kind of interesting way. It's, it's great to see Wes get his hands back on the franchise after losing control of it for, you know, six films to, to see where he wanted to take it after watching sort of the commercial pop culturification that Arthur just talked about, like seeing what Wes Craven wanted to do with his nightmare invention after seeing it turned into a, you know, Saturday morning cartoon character is really interesting. But I think all of these, Ooh, I also want to look at Prince of Darkness, uh, speaking of shared dreaming and Mm -hmm. sort of a prophetic dreaming. Uh, Love that movie. Um, What a good movie. Go listen to us talk about Prince of Darkness. We did it several years ago, but damn, that's a picture. Uh, But I I don't know. I'm, I am really interested in dreams and film and I'm really interested in the way this film portrays dreaming. Because uh, I, I, I think it's one of its biggest successes is is the the uncertainty it brings to the ninety its ninety minute runtime as far as like knowing when you're in a dream scene versus uh, sometimes you'll spot it like in the classroom scene you you can kind of clock uh oh oh one's about to start mm-hmm. they're talking about dreams in this Hamlet class uh oh but you know you don't know like the scene where she goes to visit to check in on Rod in prison like that reveals that it's a dream sequence very late into it being a dream sequence right really cool stuff so again i think all of these uh uh have got pretty 
plenty of writings on them. I know even Inception has a whole uh, book about uh, a whole philosophical text, you know, the uh, Philosophy and series. Are you guys mm-hmm. familiar with these books? Right. Yeah, there's an essay collection for at least two of these films uh, and probably a couple others. But I, I think there's there's no shortage of films about dreaming. And I, I think in any class, whether it is a philosophy class or a film studies class, you could look at films about dreams and dreaming and uh, find some really rich texts to discuss. Dustin, what about you? What are you thinking here? So what I would say is um, I, I'm not going to do the lazy man thing here where I could just do some biggie on the eye chart and talk about 80s horror or iconic horror or talk about New Line Cinema and do an industrial history. You don't, you don't think people want to hear you say men, women, and chainsaws for the 500th time? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not going to do that. Or perspective. Or we could talk about surrealism and the various ways. So, so another way to expand on dreams and the same kind of idea that you put forward. And so I'm simply going to do uh, the dear listener a different kind of favor. I'm going to give you a great double bill uh, for a, uh, a Friday night during this great month of October in which we're all sort of figuring out our horror programming. And so for, to, because again, this is sort of major arcana when we're dealing with a movie like Nightmare on Elm Street. So you should double bill and probably in this order, 1925's The Phantom of the Opera starring Lon Chaney okay. with another disfigured, uh, vengeful character gleefully doing what he does uh the ending of that film in particular uh is a a fascinating sort of moment there and then watch nightmare on elm street and i really want to make a night of it what would you follow nightmare up with if you watched a third movie after nightmare and this film hmm perhaps um the cell i would go with the cell okay yeah that'd be a fun feature that's the last one the cell yeah so there you go, dear listener. Just a, a fun little triple bill or double bill that was addended, amended into a triple bill. I, I think you came up with a third feature uh, quite well. So, Good job. I put you on the spot there. Fun times. Um, there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got much longer. Let's move on to the part of the show where we get down to business. It's That's right, dear listener, and that business is, as always, analysis. Well, what's your pleasure, fellas? Well, after talking about slasher films for the 15th time, what new ground do we tread here? Well, this one's got parents. It does have parents. And that's pretty rare. There usually aren't parents in slasher There are movies. some adults sometimes. There, there are adults in this but one. But they usually go away on business or are just mysteriously gone for the duration of the film. Yeah, here they are. Where are all the parents in Scream? Where are all those Woodsboro parents that aren't locked in a closet? Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, here we get an answer. All of the parents are like deeply traumatized from murdering Fred Krueger. And that's why they're not emotionally available to their children. Well, there's a certain Judeo-Christian sort of ethic here, like the sins of the fathers fathers. being revisited on the children here. Which is, you know, an absolute, like, Wes Craven pull. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, for those of you who don't know, this was news to me, actually. Uh, Wes Craven grew up in a pretty strict religious upbringing. Oh, he's a Wheaton College grad. Yeah, yeah. yeah, He went to Baptist College, uh, and uh, the way uh, I heard him tell it was that he went and uh, skipped a few towns over to go see To Kill a Mockingbird. And it was watching To Kill a Mockingbird that made him be like, well, if they think this is sinful, they got to be wrong. Yeah. Which I, you know, who knows how true that is. But as far as writing your own legend goes, good stuff. Good stuff, Wes. Right. Uh, but I, what an interesting backstory for one of the masters of terror. Mm-hmm. Right. But he's also got this whole life before he becomes a filmmaker. You yeah. know, he's a teacher. He's, he's a very interesting kind of well-rounded guy. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think that definitely shows in his films. Yeah, fascinating guy. And I, I think part of what this movie does then is, you know, it does not make Freddy a sympathetic villain in any way. I, I think it absolutely avoids doing that. Yeah. He's uh, he's gleeful at doing what he's doing, but he is a force of vengeance. And uh, what was fascinating to me is that I think the film surprisingly upsets the sort of myth of redemptive violence and uh, surprisingly as well sort of uh, upends the idea of vengeful killing. I mean, the idea is that uh, Freddy was some sort of child molester slash child killer who... um, Well, I've got a fun bit of backstory on that for you. Oh, yeah. Well, there's an event that takes place, right? Yeah. Yeah, the Uh, McMartin preschool mm -hmm. uh, accusations are going around like as they're shopping this movie. So they took all references to molestation out. They were yeah. like, we don't, Just we don't want to be associated with that at all. Right. Uh, we definitely don't have time to get into Mar- McMartin preschool stuff, but uh, there's plenty of podcasts about it. If you want to go learn, uh, listener, it's p- peak satanic panic uh, content for you. Mm-hmm. That shit is bananas to read about. Yeah. Uh, the McMartin preschool case. Go go look it up. But uh, yeah, that, that was kind of the reason for the change uh, of Fred Krueger to killer from molester, which I guess in the uh, 2010 remake, they, they, they go back to that. Aspect. Yeah. yeah. Go back to the well there. Yeah. But what's interesting is that um, because of some sort of technicality, he's found not guilty or mm-hmm. his charges are thrown out or whatever. Yeah. And uh, the, the townsfolk seek their own vengeance. Yeah. And the, just creates a cycle of vengeance, which is horrible, right? Uh, and uh, I, I just found that really fascinating because usually a film like this will show that eventually there's a redemptive arc and uh, that that vengefulness will finally put an end to the last one will finally be killed and it's going to be the end of whatever yeah. the problem happens to be. Nope, this uh, town is cursed. This, yeah, you've, you've brought a curse upon yourselves, really. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is, you know, surprising. Well, I guess in an earlier draft of the movie, the reason like everybody's an only child is because their sibling was murdered by Fred Krueger. Mm. So there are there are earlier versions of cool. the movie where yeah, like where yeah. uh, Nancy and and Tina like explicitly had siblings that were murdered. Yeah, uh, which I think is yeah kind of interesting as yeah. far as backstory goes because in the film we get it is kind of unclear like where did all the families with murdered children? How do they keep this a secret for yeah. twenty years? Mm-hmm. Uh, how old was you know Nancy and Tina when this happened? Uh, yeah, in- interesting questions get raised and never answered but I, I do think that's kind of part of the fun of this movie a little bit yeah uh, but you're right i mean it doesn't it doesn't let them off the hook Mm-mm. you know it doesn't say oh well you killed a monster so it's okay yeah you unleashed one no. by doing yeah. it yeah it says it says no freddie fred, fred krueger is a bad person but you became bad As people bad. Yeah. <laughs> went by doing this uh, i do think it's interesting to to not let people have the easy answer of child killers or monsters it's, no mm. they're people too and that's part of what makes it such a complicated societal issue uh the you know the maltreatment of children by bad actors is that those bad actors are still people they're not monsters they're just regular folk Mm -hmm. and that is a really hard circle to square uh philosophically speaking it's 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 tough to deal with right and i I think it's is a big strength of the movie that wes craven does not give any any clean moral guidance Uh, it is it is a big mess yeah and i love that you're right so uh, the other thing, uh, I mean, and again, that we sort of have begun to hit on it now is is the Christianness of, or the Christianity of uh, Wes Craven as again a, a rare Protestant filmmaker. Uh, ordinarily, you see a lot of good Catholic filmmakers mm-hmm. at work uh, because c- Catholic um, theology and practice has a tendency towards high imagery. But um, you know, I I think there's a way in which you could develop a canon of various Protestant filmmakers: Alexander Payne, uh, Paul Schrader. 
and Wes Craven. Kind of. I think Scott Derrickson's in there as well. I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah Derrickson yeah. might be one you'd use. Yeah. yeah. And there's probably plenty of filmmakers we're not even aware of having mm-hmm. a religious yeah. practice because they're, you know, keep it to themselves. Yeah. Right. They're not making a movie called Fireproof. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And, and the, but again, I, I think about Scorsese's religi- religiosity sure. is yeah, explicitly uh, and very Catholic. Right. Yeah, so I, I think you're right. It is interesting to sort of think about a, a different theological background mm-hmm. and how, how that impacts the filmmaking. Sure. How, how do you think it impacts this film? Well, I, I think it is the sort of justice sort of bit to it, and injustice sort of foments more injustice, mm-hmm. and that's uh, sort of the key cycle there. Um, and uh, there isn't like a rede- there's no redemptive arc in this particular film because I don't think that, well I don't I don't think Craven's interested in redemption. But if you go back even into his earlier films, and uh, again very much inspired by another Protestant filmmaker, Ingmar Bergman, uh, his uh, remake of uh, Virgin Spring, which is yeah. Last House on the Left, which is again a a, a revenge, but there's no fulfillment in that uh, rape revenge story that is that film. And so I think that's kind of one of the through lines uh, in some of his filmmaking. And there is a certain sparseness and spareness uh, to the style that you sometimes see in Protestants, even though it gets really over the top in terms of special effects and gore. Um, but that being said, you don't see, uh, again, sort of this uh, super visual, super sensual kind of uh, visuality in the film. Um, there, well, there's no sex. I mean, e- e- even when Tina it's has... very it's chaste slasher film. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not really moralizing about sex the way these typically tend to, which mm-hmm. I think I think is very interesting. I mean, yeah. yes, Tina and Rod have very uh, animated, sex. animated sex, and that's when she dies. So mm-hmm. you can say that it still does do that slasher trope. But it's definitely not doing it in a Friday 13th yeah. way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's definitely doing a different sort of thing. Or even a John Carpenter Halloween kind of way. Yeah. Uh, f- as far as back to, f- if you don't mind me taking a sidestep real mm-hmm. quick to talk about form, I really do like the way that this movie sets up Tina to be the protagonist. Yeah, it does it that sort of psycho thing. There's a little bait and switch there. Yeah, yeah I love it. As, cool. as far as centering her dream and then it being Nancy that goes, oh, now I remember my dream. Like, I, yeah, I love that the stuff. The bait and switch is so effective that I was not until my teens that I realized that Heather Lankencamp's character was not Tina instead of Nancy. Oh, that's funny. That's interesting. That I had you thought her, Tina yeah. was played by Heather Langenkamp? Yeah. Yeah. And, wow. and that, that Tina was the one who made it. Uh, I, just, I, I knew there was the blonde girl at the first, but I thought, again, that's... That's funny. That, that was my headcanon for a long time there. That's cool. There's almost a way in which... The characters, at least some of them, almost feel a bit satirical of the genre. I think in a bit of a postmodern touch that may have been hinting towards Scream. And I think specifically of Tina's boyfriend. I can't think Rod. of his name. Rod. Yeah. Mm. Who is such a, you know, Up greaser punk. Up here the toilet lawnmower. Yeah, like, yeah. just almost a step too far, like, very heavily leaning into the sex, drugs, rock and roll is what gets you killed. Mm-hmm. It feels so on the nose that it almost feels that it has to be satirical mm-hmm. in the way that he's he's drawing some of these characters, which I think is, you know, maybe lends itself to how Fred is drawn as this kind of, at times, I think, postmodern villain in a way. Mm-hmm which is just a really interesting place to look at this because I don't know that we are evaluated from that standpoint. I mean, obviously, Craven does the postmodern thing twice in very effective ways with New Nightmare and then again with Scream. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think there are already seeds of that. I mean, he's he knows the tropes. He's seen the movies. He knows the tropes. And by the time we get here, I, I, I don't know that he's not already starting to play with them in, in interesting ways. 
Yeah, no, that's that's well cited. I think. Let's talk a little bit about ageability of film and uh, the uh, sort of an old um, sawhorse that we've been working on quite a while. The way in which these practical effects makes the film uh, a bit more evergreen than mm. uh, you know that those rotating rooms uh, with uh, Tina's murder yeah. and with Glenn's um, classic movie making bullshit. Man, yeah, yeah. I mean, stuff that goes back to the forties and fifties, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just so cool. Uh, do you? You'd probably know about this because you rewatched the. Uh, I know you mentioned off air that you also rewatched a little bit of Never Sleep Again. Mm-hmm. Arthur, I don't know if you know this, when they did the so same rotating room for the Tina sequence mm-hmm. and the Glenn sequence, they almost killed themselves doing the Glenn sequence because the all the blood. Yeah. The the blood guys are like made the room tip over. Yeah. Yeah. I, crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had totally forgotten about that story. Yeah. Wild. Just, yeah. Hearing them talk about all the cables and shit to just come ripping out of the wall as, as this thing gets upended. Cause it changed the weight and they just all sat upside down in the dark for 20 minutes trying to, you know, reset everything and get everybody safe. Well, electrified the, the blood water. And somebody yeah. got shocked. Wanted, somebody got shocked badly. Yeah. 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 Nuts stuff. Wild. Look, I can sit here and lament the ways in which practical effects are lost art. Uh, and we can, is, it's easy to fetishize them, too. Yeah, it is. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, I think that does help the longevity of this. You know, those steps, it's a cool sequence. Doesn't look, You know, there are points where it doesn't look great. Obviously, they're fake. But mm-hmm. it's still cool mm-hmm. in ways that, you know, move, doing this now, it, all of it would be CGI. You know, we saw this with the Thing prequel. Yes. I guess is what, is what it exists as. Right where, and they went in, they did practical, and they're like, no, make a CGI, like, yeah. I don't know. I, I think there's still a case where... That's sort of like one of the biggest offenders Yeah, uh, to this day, I think. It just feels like in a world that is so kind of rampant with overworked visual effects departments who are trying their best, and they're putting out like 80% completed product, to see something like this, it, it is very refreshing in a way. And I think, uh, I mean... I, I made Dustin watch it. I am pretty outspoken uh, fan of, of Maverick because, mm, mm-hmm. you, you know, say what you will about the propaganda, say what you will about, you know, Tom Cruise, but there's there's just something special it's about a compelling the movie, tactile yeah. nature Shooting of that real film. Airplanes, yeah, doing real just, aerial photography. Yeah, like yeah. the level of which the immersion, I think, takes place in something like that. And something like Nightmare on Elm Street where... I think the standout is those set pieces mm. where, you know, people are moving, flying around rooms and moving across ceilings and, it's you know, just being choked top. by an invisible Freddy as he's pulling him across. There's just something really cool about it. Yeah. That and I, the spandex so Freddy through the wall thing. You know? Such a good effect. So, cool. so simple. <laughs> yeah. It's so simple, but it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so cool they use it in the Pact, which we've talked about mm-hmm. on the show a million years ago. No. Uh, Is that what they do in the Frighteners, too? Are they using uh, the same yes, thing, or are they yeah. doing visual stuff? I think they're using the same thing there. Yeah. That would make sense. Frighteners has a very kind of homemade aesthetic, classic, yeah. early Peter Jackson yeah. sort mm-hmm. of touches. But I think I think Jackson's a great guy to cite, right? Somebody that, like, uh, especially in those, uh, another nice. new line, big new line cinema project, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah, it was I big mean, for them. Yeah, it's a little bit. Um, On a number of levels. Have yes. they already been acquired by Warner Brothers? Not yet. Is that that's yeah. probably what got them bought? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I only bring it up to say, like, that's a great example of somebody who did practical uh, visual effects and special effects and blended them together. And as far as like using miniatures and then going in with CGI to make them look a little bit better, like that's, you know, I, that kind of speaks to what this film's doing, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, it's, it's easy to just be like, Ooh, we want practical special effects, 
but you know, there's there's a time and place for digital. Sure, for sure. absolutely, yeah. there is. Because uh, this film could probably use a little bit of it in mm-hmm. some places to clean some things up. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, it, I, it would have been a lot easier to do the stretched arm thing if they could just go in and delete the fishing poles, right? Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, then they've got stuff like this huge tank that turns the bathtub into a like endless dream lagoon, which is cool. So cool. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite shots of the movie is, yeah. is uh, Heather going into the like the lagoon underneath the tub. Yeah. Such a cool shot. Yeah. Uh, Man. Very scary. Very, very exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've almost fallen asleep in a bathtub before. That shit's scary. Yeah, no uh, doubt. No doubt is terrifying. Uh, another thing I think it works uh, a lot about this film is that makes it different from other slashers of its period is the choice of an actor to play our killer yeah. rather than a stunt person. And to have lines, to give him an actual personality yeah. and yeah. character, and I mean that's how yeah. Freddie becomes the protagonist of the franchise is, is mm-hmm. Robert England's performance, yeah. is is being really compelling and uh, really bringing something to the character. I mean, you just you know having somebody who has that actor's thought process of trying to bring life and reality to the character gives you something. Which you know, if you want somebody that looks like a killing machine, you hire a stuntman for sure. I mean, sure, they're big dudes in, in a lot of, a lot of cases. But yeah, I think the sort of Robert England's slight frame kind of adds something to it in yeah. some ways. Uh, his very actorly way of moving. Yeah. Uh, when you hear him talk about becoming Freddie, it's really kind of fun to hear yeah. him talk through his process of like yeah. putting on the glove for the first time, being like, oh, it makes my shoulder slump. And I'm, kind of gives me the gunslinger mm-hmm. posture. It's just like hear, hearing him kind of talk through his process. Like, I think you're right. It does it adds something. And again, it. I mean, what I guess um, Hellraiser is another example of a franchise where uh, yeah. sort of the, the the scary guy in makeup is played by an actor. Not a right, right. Yeah. Douglas Bradley there, yeah, yeah. Uh, d- does bring a similar kind of weight to the... Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very few since, you know. I mean, you can think of Tony Todd as the Candyman, mm-hmm. and then Tobin Bell as Jigsaw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the list. For the most part, yeah. You know, I mean, obviously, the the kind of thing with Ghostface is, obviously, we got Stu and, and what's his name, Billy, mm-hmm. right? But it, they feel separate from the actual Ghostface who is menacing right. the characters. Well, well, and then throughout the rest of the franchise, it's totally interchangeable, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So I, I think that's a really interesting point. It is also, I think, interesting that it doesn't really come back, you know, to that throughout the, the next... 40 years i mean i think you're right you know you know tobin bell is jigsaw is kind of it is weird this movie's about 40 years old though right i'm gonna go ahead and just call it cut uh i'll see you guys next week <laughs> i am decomposing as we speak uh dalton the other night a a, a a college kid was talking about how they wanted to go home and watch a knight's tale uh because they really enjoyed it and someone was like oh what's that and they're like oh it's an old heath ledger movie i mean all movies starring heath ledger are old now is a fucked up thing to think about. It is an old Heath Ledger movie <sighs> that I saw in theaters <laughs> back in with, my day with my family. I paid four dollars a ticket. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we probably did not pay much. It was definitely a matinee. Um, um, yeah, but anyway, yeah, Tobin Bell as the Jigsaw Killer. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really it, it is interesting that we don't see more personalities as killers. I guess mm-hmm. I, I I don't know if there's something to the concern of the mystery shrouded figure is scarier. Mm-hmm. Or, I think that's definitely something or to if, it. You know, but I mean, I, I think the menace of Jigsaw is also a really interesting place to play. You know, I mean, that you can do 
interesting because there's a, a real life element to it, mm-hmm. I think. Right. Especially with Jigsaw, who's much more toned down than Fred Krueger. Yeah. Well, of course, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I you know, I think there are ways in which you can make that menacing and scary because there's a, a real world element to it. Uh but I I like that point. Mm-hmm. I think something we haven't talked about is is how effective Nancy is as a protagonist. Oh yeah, Heather Langkamp does a great job. Yeah, I mean, she's a good, she's a good great performer. But like even just from a scripting level, like the she's what are you into? I'm into survival. Survival, man. Yeah, yeah. Her her be reading like army manuals and stuff to learn how to set up booby traps. In the her house. home aloneness of that final act is just fantastic. It's so good. Well, and I, I you know Wes Craven uh, talked about in uh, Never Sleep Again. Just he's like, oh yeah, I had booby traps in uh, Last House on the Left too. Eventually, I had to tell myself enough with the booby traps he just, he just thinks they're fun mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's, he, that's cool. he's put them in that's so cute. many movies because he's just yeah. like yeah they're just cool i yeah. like them they're I fun like i agree yeah they are the the special effects guys also said like yeah some of those traps like just came from that book we just we just basically made the booby traps that were in in the thing the army survival guide which i think is really that's funny cool. that is very fun but, i mean she has to rely on herself right and this is something uh, unspooled has a really great episode about a nightmare on elm street and uh, Amy Nicholson kind of highlights this as sort of uh, w- what makes uh, Heather Langenkamp such a compelling uh, presence as Nancy is is that Nancy like has all these people in her life that say they're going to help her, want to help her, whether it's her dad or her mom or Glenn, and they all fall short. She has to rely on herself, and uh, it is kind of interesting. And she seems entirely capable of doing that. Yeah. I mean, that, she's a very powerful character. Yeah, I, one of the few uh, final girls that is kind of in control from start to finish and in a really interesting way. Uh, yeah, just a, such an effective character. And again, again, it's something that sets this film apart from other slasher wannabes is, is that character. I think, uh, she's great. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also something kind of interesting, just sort of these dual secrets going on between, uh, Nancy and her mom, right? Nancy hiding her, uh, her coffee and caffeine pills uh, and her mom hiding her drinking and, and the secret of Fred Krueger. Just uppers and downers. Yeah, exactly. It just, I mean, both of them going th- through some very serious stuff substance wise mm-hmm. and like hiding it from each other in a way that is, I don't know, very real to life in, yeah. in all of this surreal dream terror going on. There is some like real beating heart stuff going on in this movie. Like those scenes between uh, Heather and her mom, like or uh, Nancy and her mom, like while they do go a little broad and a little melodramatic, I do think they're really effective scenes yeah. as far as characterizing both of them, giving them motivations, uh, giving them like uh, a relational conflict within the scope of the movie. I think it's really effective stuff, mm-hmm. and it just again it makes all these characters feel more real and more interesting, and makes you want them to survive, makes you want to see them uh, get out of this movie on, on and on out the other side. Right? Um, should we talk? Speaking about getting out on the other side, I, we've talked about the ending a little bit. I guess we, we, yeah, we, we, we can talk about it more if you wish. Yeah. What, what does it mean to you guys? Uh, you know, I've, I've said what Robert England kind of thinks it means. Does it mean anything? Is it just a bad ending? <sighs> well, it's definitely a dream sequence, right? Yeah. I mean mm-hmm. that that. It's- coded that way in the film's it, language it yeah. seems that we we see uh i think we see that heather failed yeah and we said yeah. or, or, or nancy failed and that that's just her next nightmare which is unfortunate because it like robs all of wes craven's cool idea about not giving into fear you know mm-hmm. wes craven's got this cool fear is the mind killer idea going yeah. on in this film and it just isn't able to execute because of you know producer notes well, and I, well, I mean, what it does, though, in that sense, I mean, I, I, I get what you're saying, and I do find that a little disappointing, but um, the nature of Freddy Krueger is more than simply just him being the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. He is, uh, again, um, an unleashed curse. Mm. 
and uh, you cannot undo the curse by simply, well, by pretending it's not there. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Which, I mean, and so so that sort of re-strengthens its sort of ideological root, I think, in that sense. And it, no, I don't necessarily think that Nancy dies. No, I don't. Uh, uh, yeah, in that, it's, in that, it, it, it's not necessarily saying she lost. It's It, it definitely feels more of a, this isn't over yet. Yeah, this isn't over yet, yeah. And they just, you know, didn't get around to another Nancy movie until they got the third around to one, making yeah. a, a Heather Langenkamp movie. and Which is great, because then she's a psychologist who studies dreams and helps to... Oh, is, wait, is this real? Yeah, in Dream, oh. uh, she's in, she's in um, Dream Warriors. She's oh, I in didn't three. Know. Yeah. Okay, cool. I was talking about New Nightmare. Yeah, no, no, she comes back in three and in seven. Okay, cool. That's fun. So one, three, seven are the best ones. Uh, the Freddy Convertible's cool. The I do Freddy like Con- the Freddy Vertle. It is fun. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's... That top, the the green and red stripes on the top, that's that's good stuff. That's the car I want. That's the Hollywood car I want. Forget your Adam West Batmobiles and your Echo (laughs) 1s. I want the the Fred Krueger Cadillac. Yeah, that that convertible Cadillac's pretty slick. It is very fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, any other final thoughts? Uh, Anything we want to talk about that we haven't discussed? Johnny Depp never talks about Night Around Elm Street, and I hate him for that. But that's all. Uh, Yeah, I got a very little... list, but that's all. He's got other... She's on his mind right but now. But that's that's a list for me. That's on the list for me. Yeah, you don't like that he doesn't give enough flowers to Wes Craven. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, yeah, he was doing Twenty One Jump Street at the same time, but it's a movie that made him. Uh, yeah, yeah, dog on it. Well, we've got other things to discuss about Johnny Depp. We could, but I mean, I don't. I don't care. think we have time. I, to I don't get care into to it. discuss any of that. No, well, we frankly don't have time for it. But I'm looking at you, Kevin Bacon. I'm looking at uh, th- there's a couple of you guys. I'm looking at like you know what? I think Kevin Bacon's uh, speaks fondly of uh, the Friday the Thirteenth franchise. Well, he does a better job than um, Johnny does. Yeah, uh, I'm looking at Matthew McConaughey for. Texas Chainsaw. Texas, Texas Chainsaw, what, three? I don't know. Nobody saw that movie, though. Yeah. It's not like the that next was a generation. huge hit. Yeah. yeah. It's him and Renee, and nobody cares. Yeah. Well, I do. <laughs> you're you're the one. I'm the one. I still. Little, little he's horror. lamenting. He's writing notes in his office. I'm going to send them an angry fan letter. <laughs> I don't think Matthew McConaughey, McConaughey's hurting. No. Dear Mr. McConaughey. <laughs> I hope you enjoy your fancy Lincoln. <laughs> I want to talk to you today about your involvement involvement in the underseen 1990-somethings <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, starring one you and Renee Zellweger. So there you go, Dustin. There's the opening yeah. for your note. Yeah, Patricia Arquette, same thing. Dear Stan, the- I wrote you, but you still don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, I just, you know... I, I get what you're saying, though. Well, I... I, I there are people uh, like Robert England, uh, Heather Langenkamp, who are uh, Bruce Campbell, who they're kind of making their living now because of the cons yep. and service these fans. And I just I understand that Johnny Depp does not need that money. I understand that Matthew McConaughey does not need that money. But um, I don't know. Throw so there's the, a ghettoization the, of horror, as a right? Genre yeah, right throw now. the fans a bone and show up at a con. Uh, you know, I I don't know. Just, yeah, it, is that what you're you're yeah. saying they need? Yeah. That's fair. I don't know. They're busy people. I, I get Who that. Who cares? But they don't have to be that busy. They they play they play pretend for a living. That's fair. So anyway, I know. I think you're right. Me. There is definitely a. Uh, I, I think there's a certain amount of looking down on people who like do cons for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably needless, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, I'm sure the con thing is not for everybody. You know, it's not every actor is into being lavished with praise necessarily. That can be kind of an awkward environment if it's not what you're looking for. But uh, yeah, it is interesting the ways in which people kind of distance themselves from uh, their, their early screen efforts. Um, but I, I, you know, I know he has given props to Wes Craven for, you know, starting his career effectively. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I've, I have definitely heard him at least, you know, be deferential in that regard. But uh, I really don't care about the guy that much, to be honest. Well, I mean, he's a bad example, perhaps, uh, at this point. At yeah. this very, very specific point in time. <laughs> but I get what you're saying. Yeah, but yeah, I'm not just looking at him. I'm looking at a handful of other cats, too, who made it big. And I'm like, great, I'm glad you made it big, but remember where you started, remember where you come from, you know? Fair enough. That's all. Uh, all right, well, let's move on. Let's run to a verdict now. Friday, thir- Friday the 13th. Nightmare on Elm Street. What are we watching? Nightmare on Elm Street. Shell for trash, Arthur go. Why is it always me? Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's because I'm rubbing my eye every time. Yeah, you're distracted. Yeah, that's probably it. I, uh, uh, I'm i not going to tell you to trash the most iconic horror movie of all time. Uh, <laughs> if I Even if I don't love it. Uh, I, I mean, that's just, I mean, it's influential. Uh, it's important from a uh, business background as, as making New Line a legitimate studio in many ways, quote unquote, the house that Freddie built. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. What do you want from me? You're not, no, don't, don't trash it. Put it on the shelf. Very good. Very good. What do you say, Dalton? Yeah. Similar answer over here. Uh, I mean, yeah, I've got my problems with this movie. It's not entirely effective anymore. And yet there are things about it that are so incredibly effective. So for every beat that doesn't quite work anymore, because you know, we've seen Freddie do a rap, uh, there's, we there's, have. there's a beat that still like completely lands, you know? So I, again, I, I'm not going to tell you to trash this movie. This is as far as slasher movies go. This is like one of three you kind of have to see. Um, and it's still a damn good movie, even mm-hmm. warts and all. So yeah, I'm, I'm saying it's absolutely shelfable and I assume you'll be saying likewise. I am saying likewise and with less of the qualifiers. Um, yeah, just, man, it's, it's Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, what do you want? This is an important movie. Therefore, you should own it. Done. There you go. So, uh, if you want to be part of the conversation and tell us we're wrong, Dalton will tell you how. That's right. If you don't think you need to have a nightmare on Elm Street on your shelf, you can email us why. Send that email to goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. That's the name of the show you're listening to at goodtrash at gmail.com. <laughs> you can also find us on Twitter at goodtrashmedia. Uh, let us know what you're enjoying about Shocktober 11, Shocked from the Book of Shocks. <laughs> Uh, it's at Good Trash Media to find us on Twitter. And last but certainly not least, if you want to get involved in helping keep the lights on and supporting us, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM and get all kinds of info on what supporting the show gets you, whether that's a selection of a movie for us to watch or a selection of a movie for us to send you. We, me, we would be the ones selecting the movie, of course. You're going to fill out a little survey. Arthur's going to put it through his algorithm that is his, his mighty mind and uh, send you a film based on your preferences. Uh, so anyway, that's patreon.com forward slash GTM if you want more information on that stuff. Arthur, the shocks and frights continue. What will you delight us with next? Next week, Shocktober 11, Shock from the Book of Shocks continues. And we're saying farewell to the flesh as we head to Chi-Town to talk about the Candyman and Nia DaCosta's 2021 reimagining of the myth and the character. Very, very fun. I'm looking forward to that. Um, have we done the original Candyman? No. No. I might find time to watch the original Candyman because I I've feel seen, like I want to. Yeah. I've seen Nia DaCosta's 2021 Candyman. I like it quite a bit. I have not seen, uh, not Clive Barker, but whoever directed it. I don't know. Tony mm. Todd is the, the only yeah. force that matters. Like Clive Barker and Tony Todd's Candyman from yeah. 1990. Yeah, I have not seen that. And I think I might make time for it. I'm the opposite of you. So interesting. That um, is interesting. So there you go, dear listener. Um, that's what's coming up next. You keep watching. We'll keep talking. And we'll see you all next time. Next time.